Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. We're back with another Journal Club this week, and in this episode, we'll be looking at the use of AI in detecting papilledema and examining the findings of a head-to-head real-world validation study of AI in diabetic retinopathy across seven different algorithms. Before we get into that, um, on the 24th of February, Rainier Schlingemann and Camille Bone will be hosting the next Uretina Case Club from Amsterdam UMC. These are great events where cases are presented by junior colleagues and then discussed by key opinion leaders. So lots to learn and it's very practical. The discussions are based on real cases. Uh, So do check it out. The Uretina Case Club from Amsterdam UMC on the 24th of February, 8pm CET. Also, a reminder that the abstract submission portal for e-posters, free papers and the video competition is now open. These are, of course, the lifeblood of any medical society, sharing and educating each other with the latest information. It's also a great opportunity to be recognised for the work that you've done and lessons you've learned over the year within the Uretina community. So for details on how to enter all of these and submit your abstracts or e-posters, check out the Uretina website, uretina.org. Okay, I'd now like to welcome the chairs of this Journal Club episode, Tunde Peto from Queen's University in Belfast and Sebastian Wolf from Inselspital University Hospital Bern. Uh, Tunde, is it a bit early to say that AI is transforming imaging worldwide, do you think? No, I, I believe it is truly a transformative change that we are seeing at the moment. It might not be at the stage where we can use it for every step of the pathway where we would where we are seeing the opportunities for it to be used. But overall, um, it it is time for us to take AI seriously, learn about its advantages, disadvantages, and learn about the ways that that it can transform our clinical pathways. Sebastian, um, I know you have lots of interesting projects going on at Bern, um, but how do you think Europe is doing in comparison to the United States in this field? Or, Or do you tend to look at it like that? No, I I wouldn't separate Europe from US or Asia. I think all over the world, ophthalmology is doing a lot of work in AI. And um, there are very interesting projects looking at diagnosis, screening, which I'm most interested in predicting something which we were not able before. And uh, I think this is the future of uh, AI because uh, we need to have something additional, not only the same diagnosis like doctors can do. All right, well, I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing what comes out of this journal club. Our chairs are joined by contributors, professors uh, Tarek Aslam from the University of Manchester and Piers Keane from Moorfields and University College London. Uh, I will hand over to our chairs now um, and sit back and enjoy the conversation. Tunde. Thank you. So it's wonderful to have such a such a great uh, cast here today, and we are really really excited to provide some inf- some information and and some ways of looking at some of these papers that are coming out on AI. I know all of you who are listening have had the pleasure of reading some of these papers, but sometimes they can be really really hard going, and it can be really difficult to understand what some of the authors might want to say. Or if you're thinking about introducing AI into your clinical pathways, 
it might be very daunting to think about the ways how you can do it. So I'm joined today by two eminent experts of AI, and I'm really excited about discussing the papers that will help you to understand the certain aspects of AI and how it might help us to care for our patients. So I'm going to ask Tariq from Manchester to introduce the journal uh, article that he has chosen, and then we'll have some discussion around the issues that it might bring up. Tariq? Hi, Tunde, and thank you for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be uh, among such prestigious company today, uh, who I, whose work I, I know really well. I remember going to Euretina-type meetings a few years ago and seeing the odd glimmer of something. I actually remember Piers saying some years ago, there's this thing called deep learning coming. And, you know, I, I, I'm thinking of getting into this field. <laughs> and that's how, old, that's how old I am. People will laugh at that in years to come. And this year's Euretina had masses of stuff on AI, you know, whole just masses of sections. It wasn't just one symposium. It was just many. It seems to be taking over. The paper I'm going to talk about really hit me because one, it was it was um, one of Aaron Lee's papers, who's always a, a great speaker, but it was something that addressed the question of what I know Pierce has called the AI chasm, which is translating all the amazing work that's being done in AI and the fantastic achievements that many papers show into clinical practice. What sorts of things do we need to do to be able to get that into our clinical practice? And the title of the paper, was a multi-center head-to-head real-world validation study of seven AI diabetic retinopathy screening systems. So you would be forgiven for not proceeding with reading that paper with that title, but it could also be called uh, an expose or a deep look at the actual benefits or not of the AI systems that might be being used on your eyes in years to come. So we all know that diabetes is such a prevalent disease and its prevalence is increasing, I suspect AI use in diabetic retinopathy could be one of the first more, most mainstream things that uh, is going to be applied. And in this study, Aaron looked at, we well, actually invited 20 or so companies that had developed AI systems for assessing diabetic retinopathy. Uh, and of those, seven agreed. And of these seven uh, systems, he put through about 300,000 images and assessed how good these systems actually were in the real world. So he assessed them in two centers in the US. And this is really, really important because this form of external validation or real world studies is one of the key things that uh, people are talking about and, and the need to do in AI. Now, you might expect that because these were all systems that had been either validated or had been approved actually or were being clinical use so you would it might have expected that all of them performed really well maybe some more than others but the interesting thing was that there were only three actually whose sensitivities for picking up referable diabetes was as good as that of the test standard and so there were some safety issues that were risen by this and it really highlighted the importance of external validation and of the whole of the infrastructure around AI and the other things that we need to do before we get too excited about uh, the potential to make sure that we have safe systems as well as uh, systems that are going to help us in our clinical practice. The other paper that um, I was I was going to use as a framework for 
what I'm talking about today is is my own work, uh, which I did with a mathematician and a, a, an AI expert coming specifically from the mathematics field, uh, which was on uh, explaining the machine and how we actually, as clinicians, what we need to know to be able to progress in AI in the future. And that was a paper published in Ophthalmology and Therapy. And one of the first things in that paper, what I talk about is how AI is what we don't think, and I don't think AI is going to take over from human care, but that it is something that we all need to embrace moving forward. And so what I'm going to do is just go through that paper and use Aaron's paper to reflect on some of the statements that I make uh, and, and the comments that I make. Now, the first one was uh, essentially about using external validation, the importance of external validation. The next thing I talk about in uh, my paper, Translating the Machine, is about how AI systems may not necessarily be obvious to us in future. They may be in systems we already use that we don't know about. So, for example, in um, electronic health records, there, there are some systems that electronic health records that can uh, adapt what we're seeing, uh, adjusting to what AI systems think the clinician wants to see. Some forms of OCTA imaging, for example, have AI systems applied to them so that the image we see has gone through this pathway of improving its resolution. And so we just need to be aware of that because some of those systems might have had some validation studies done on them, but others might not have done. And the second key thing I talk about is how we as clinicians will need to brush up a little bit on the way these systems are assessed. So Aaron talks in his study about sensitivity and specificity of the AI system. And those are all uh, terminologies that I think we all understand, including things like the ROC curve, maybe a few, few less people understand, but those are quite commonly used in clinical practice. But perhaps other tools such as positive predictive value or negative predictive value might be more useful in future. So it really depends on what the AI system is going to be used for. In Aaron's uh, studies, it wasn't just about sensitivity, but specifically, for example, for diabetic retinopathy, rather than sensitivity, the key thing we might want to know about is how many of the patients who the system said didn't have referable retinopathy actually didn't have referable retinopathy, if you see what I mean. So we want to make sure on the safe side um, what's going on there. And so we need to know about the different values. So for that might be that we need a high negative predictive value. And there are still lots of different terms that are being used. So one of the things that we will need to do, I think, moving forward is to try and understand that terminology a bit better. Another thing that comes up a lot in Aaron's paper is how we need to be sure that the compatibility of AI with our own scenario. So in Aaron's paper, he pondered on why some of the systems didn't work as well as they perhaps might have been expected to. And one of the reasons he thought was because some of the cameras weren't using dilated images. Now, both the systems, all the algorithms were, were prepped in advance and the manufacturers knew that the exact cameras that they were going to be done on, but still the image quality might not have been as good. So when we're adopting AI systems in the future, we need to be sure that the systems that the data that it's trained on is similar to the data that we have in our own system, the similar sorts of cameras, similar sorts of uh, images. And the other thing that he does really well 
is explain, for example, the racial and gender breakdown of its population. And that's really important because it doesn't necessarily, again, it's the same principle that when you're using an AI system, the AI systems are basically learning systems. And they learn on a set of data. And if that set of data is different to the ones that you have in your clinic, then you might get uh, odd results. He very precisely delineates the racial breakdown, for example, and sex breakdown. And one of the things that occurred to me that was that in his group, not only did he not have an Indian and uh, Pakistani origin group, he actually, we, he sort of called it Asian, but he was talking about a different sort of Asian because it's American and uh, compared to the UK. And that was quite interesting to me. It really highlighted how you know, we might be in different centers. We've got even different terminology for the different racial groups we use. And the final thing I want to talk about was how when we use AI systems, we're going to have to learn to combine the outputs that they provide. Firstly, as I said, we're going to need to know, do we trust them or not? But then we're going to need to learn how do we use the outputs that they provide and combine it with our own knowledge. So this comes down to things like terms like explainable AI and how the AI systems are going to interact with us. So it's really important that uh, there are some form of saliency maps or uh, information given in the AI system about how it came about its conclusions. And it, in Aaron's group, for example, um, he talked a little bit about how to be classed as referable, it just had to have any diabetic retinopathy. So that might mean one tiny microaneurysm somewhere in a wide field image. And even an expert system or a group of experts might miss that. So does that mean the AI system was right or does it mean it, it, it was wrong? And so knowing a little bit about what the AI system is doing and how it works is really important to be able to interpret how seriously we take it and not necessarily for it to negate what we think on our clinical side. And the final thing I'll, I will talk about is just how not to forget the human skills. And I think what's really key that comes out of uh, some of uh, Aaron's papers and Pierce's and other, others' work is that what we hope is that AI, when it's used and it can be used, if we can counter the challenges of this chasm of getting it into practice, is that it not only uh, gives us a more efficient way of dealing patients, but the time that's freed up allows us to use our human skills on patients a little bit more and uh, overall then give a greater patient care. So it's not just about volume, but quality of care. Thank you, Tariq, for that fantastic um, summary. And I'm sure we will learn a lot more um, terminology or relearn some of the terminology that we learned in undergraduate statistics and, and public health in order for us to be able to understand these papers. Can I just uh, pick up on a couple of things with you? One of them is sort of gradability and to be able to see um, everything that we need to see on the images. From what we see in some of the screening programs is that by the time the image gets to the reading center, whatever it might be, an ophthalmologist, optometrist, trained graders, by that stage, usually the patient has gone home. So if the image is poor quality, then it's too late to retake. So on my wish list, there is instant feedback, not necessarily instant diabetic grade, but instant feedback to the screener. Some of the screeners 
are very inexperienced. They might be working alone in a remote setting. So do you see how we could incorporate that into an AI software that would immediately tell the screener, please try to take a better picture before we actually lose the opportunity to see something on that image? Yeah, I, um, I've not thought that about that particular issue before, but I think that would be entirely feasible. But it comes under this umbrella today of all the things we need to think about when AI systems are, are um, incorporated. So it's not just about the sensitivity specificity of the system, but when it comes into our own infrastructure, what are the other little things that we need to do to make sure that it's practical in our own workforce and uh, according to the way we work? Um, I think Sebastian was going to yeah uh, yeah I, I I would be interested in if in the Lee paper or Aaron's paper is something about images not gradable yeah. um, a category how many of these images are not gradable and how the different systems deal with this this would be very interesting for me uh, the other point is how they feed the images into their algorithm. So uh, is there a standard uh, format of the images? I know there are different initiatives that we can use DICOM images, which is not a big problem for fundus photographs, which is a big problem for some OCT images between companies. They call it DICOM, but it's not DICOM or it's a uh, specific kind of DICOM. Do you have anything about this uh, in the paper? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really important point and um, it's not talked about much in this paper, but I know it's a really hot topic in terms of people's wish lists in terms of AI and standardization of image formats. Pierce, is, I'm going to let Pierce in because I can see his... Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I actually just wanted to kind of pick up on a couple of other things that you, you talked about. Um, but before I do, I think that image quality is a key thing. And, you know, there's lots of work done by... Uh, the people at Google, Google Health, Google Brain, etc., where they've actually shown when they've tried to do real world studies in Thailand and in India and other places, it turns out it's much more challenging than you might imagine, you know, to get images of sufficient quality. But but really, there was a just kind of two points I can I wanted to pick up on because I felt the papers you chose were were brilliant and the discussion points I feel really could feed into the discussion in the paper that I'll discuss. But the first point is, you say that most people know sensitivity and specificity, but actually, I'm not so sure of that. And when I was in medical school, there was one of the kind of senior consultants, They would he would always say that, like, he was a general surgeon, and one of the tricks he had to throw people in final exams was suddenly to just ask them, define sensitivity or define specificity. And I bet you, if you got 100 ophthalmologists and you asked them to do that, and particularly if you put them under pressure, I don't think that they would get the right answer on that. So that's the first thing. We still have loads more to learn. This, the second thing I just really couldn't help noting was with Aaron's paper, it's validating the algorithm on a retrospective data set, but it's 300,000 images. And so I, I kind of think like traditionally we're taught that prospective studies are the best. But would you prefer to, if, if you had diabetes and you were having DR screening done, would you prefer to have an algorithm that was prospectively validated on 300 patients or retrospectively validated on 300,000 patients worth of data? 
So I, I suspect what is going to need to happen in the future when we have these systems is that we actually actually had end up having both because you know we can start off on the retrospective images and show that it's good for our unit, but then we're probably going to need to keep some ongoing form of audit, you could call it, I guess, and say, yes, and as we're going forward, things are changing. Our population may change, the migration may change, our cameras may change a little bit. And so we're probably going to need both of those things. And the more I read on this, the bigger the topic gets, isn't it? It's just mushrooming because now we're not just, we're moving away from AI, but AI and infrastructure and AI and, and how it's going to interact with our clinical practice and all the legal, logistic, practical and audit things we need to do. I, I, I sort of sometimes think of it as uh, the, the easiest way to think about it is in football, we were talking about bringing VAR. You know, we talked about it for a long time. And then when it first came, it was an absolute disaster. And it just took a long time to sort of get those systems and work out how this new technology, which is amazing, is actually going to work with the humankind, which we've maybe still not got quite yet, but we're a bit, we're, we're edging closer to it. Yeah, I, I, I do see the same problem. What, what's happening if the population is changing or the camera is changing? Uh, your algorithm is fixed once you have approved the algorithm. So do you need to retrain? Do you, uh, retraining may be much easier in a smaller data set if uh, the things are changing, but still you need to retrain. In addition, I think we need to also retrain the way how we um, allow these algorithms into the clinical practice, how we, we license them, how we think about them as a living, breathing organism, really. Because if we can't continue to develop them as technology and our understanding of the disease develops, then we, we will have a real issue that we might not be grading or acting upon what we think we are, in, including um, some of the newer cameras where there are either white field or they use different methodology. They don't use full white light. So they don't have the full spectrum of, of white light that some of the traditional cameras have used. So the one thing I would like to really ask uh, before I let you, Tarek, to, to summarize some of your thoughts around this paper is that how about this issue of explainability? I know that it comes up in a lot of papers, but if we, if we think about the ways how a human comes to decision-making, um, and we've done this study with lots and lots of graders, we asked them to talk us through, is a method called Think Aloud. So we asked the graders to talk us through as to what, and what they're doing, what they're thinking as they're grading, and how they come to the conclusion that they came to. And even those ones that came to the, con the right conclusion they did it in many, many different ways. So if we cannot quite explain how our own mind works, how are we going to tackle to explain how artificial intelligence got to the same conclusion as a human would or got to the same conclusion twice or three times or with seven different programs? So where do you see this, this explainability issue to be completely sorted or do we just have to learn to live with some uncertainty? 
I think it will be an ongoing process, but I do think it's important for AI systems in development to not be completely opaque to the clinician. So I don't think it would be correct for them to say, you know, you wouldn't want to take a referral and say this patient needs to be seen because the algorithm has said you'd want to know why. So for, for the diabetic neuropathy, it should probably say we found one microorganism in the far periphery in the top left, because otherwise you'll be staring at the thing for ages and wondering what the hell and actually getting worried. And Pierce, I know, has done a lot of work in explainability. So Pierce, you want so, to make... Well, I just wanted to say we need to figure this out. We need to do experiments. We need to see, we need to explore this in the real world, because it seems to me there will be some cases where explainability is important and some cases where explainability is not who cares about explainability and so what are the concrete scenarios where explainability might be important and so for example you know we developed an algorithm that can do segmentation of oct scans and make a diagnosis on the scans and imagine a situation where you're you're an ophthalmologist and you have a patient in front of you with an oct that looks entirely normal to you Okay, but the world's uh, most famous AI system that has beaten all the world's leading experts in various tests is saying to you, um, this patient needs an injection in their eye. Well, what do you do? Do you just say, I'm just going to inject? And then, you know, if it turns out that you're wrong, what happens? Or what happens if you say, I'm not going to inject? And it turns out that you haven't listened to the world's most famous AI system and the patient loses sight because of that. And if you have explainability, maybe you can see, well, it's come to this decision, but it's only because it's erroneously detected the retinal thickness or something like that. And then you can say, okay, now I have a justification to overrule the system and carry on with the care of this patient. Yeah. And also you'll probably need to explain that to the patient. So the patient will want to know uh, what's happened. You'll say, well, the AI system says no, he wants me to inject, but I'm not going to because uh, and that's going to help you with that human communication as well and i agree it entirely depends on what the system is going to be used for we've been talking about uh, ones which are going to be highly interactive with physicians combining with the ai but it may be a system so we're working on something uh for looking at complications of chemotherapy and in that system it it's just purely screening for anything that's abnormal and so it might be less important than one that says that's instructing you to inject, like Pierce's example. Yeah, I think this is this is an absolutely um, wonderful summary and finishing of um, this this topic and and the two papers that you have chosen, Tariq. Thank you very much. And as while we have um, you know over five hundred million people with diabetes around the globe that we need to screen, you know, regularly, if not yearly, everyone. This disease process also affects some of the other parts of the eye as well, and that can be diabetic papillopathy, which is which is one of the common complications, especially in young people. But also um, papillopathy and and optic nerve disorders come in lots of different ways, and and it's it's actually really quite difficult sometimes to decide even for the humans if, if um, the optic nerve disease uh, reached the point where we need to worry about. So I'm going to ask Piers to present the paper he has chosen because it follows beautifully uh, from the first two papers. And as Piers said, some of the issues that it brings up, um, we have um, partly discussed. 
So Piers, over to you. Um, thanks, Tunde. So the, the title of the paper that I've chosen is called Artificial Intelligence to Detect Papilledema from Ocular Fundus Photographs. And this is a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2020. The team behind it are an international consortium called the, the Bonsai Consortium. Uh, but really, I think that's led by a number of centers, so particularly uh, Singapore, um, Atlanta in the US, and, uh, and some French centers. And the artificial intelligence system that they've described is developed in Singapore. And, and so Singapore is one of the world leaders in ophthalmic AI. And I think it's, it's a, a lovely paper. It's very easy to read. It's very clear paper. And of course, it's that rare thing, a paper that gets published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the most prestigious of all the clinical journals. So uh, what this paper is about is essentially it starts with the idea that non-ophthalmologists, what they say is do not confidently perform direct ophthalmoscopy. And I feel like that's something that every medical student and every doctor around the world who is an ophthalmologist relates to this idea they're given a direct ophthalmoscope and they can't really see anything and they have to like pass their exams even though they can't see anything and so and of course the truth is actually ophthalmologists don't really use direct ophthalmoscopes very often and we're probably not that good at using them ourselves but leaving that aside the idea was if you're a doctor in an emergency department or an urgent care clinic or in a general practice and someone comes into you with a headache then really you should try and do direct ophthalmoscopy on that patient to try and detect papilledema or some other serious ocular abnormality. And, you know, doctors are not good at that. Now, what they then suggest is that they would develop a deep learning system that can look at color fundus photographs of the optic disc. And essentially the, the AI system would then classify them as either being normal, as having papilledema or having other abnormalities, which could be a heterogeneous group of things like congenital anomalies or optic atrophy or other things like that. So what they what they did in this study <clears throat> was they retrospectively collected about 15,000 color fundus photographs, and a certain percentage of those were, were taken from neuro-ophthalmology clinics and had a diagnosis of papilledema by neuro-ophthalmologists. And uh, a certain percentage were other uh, abnormalities, which were also taken from neuro-ophthalmology clinics. And then a certain percentage were normal, and they were taken from more general ophthalmic uh, settings. And a key point was that these were all images taken with proper fundus cameras, and the patients were pharmacologically dilated. And a strength was that it was many different cameras, and it was multiple different ethnicities. And I think one of the reasons why this paper would have been accepted in New England Journal is because this was data from, you know, more than 20 different sites from more than 10 different countries all, all around the world. So what they did was they trained their algorithm and then they evaluated the performance of the algorithm uh, using something that Tarek referred to earlier called um, ROC curves, which is receiver operating characteristic curves. And then those curves allow you to determine sensitivities and specificities at certain operating points. Now, the key results then, when you look in the abstract of this paper, was that in their internal validation, so their kind of preliminary testing of the algorithm, the model, when it was asked to distinguish between papilledema 
versus normal or other other abnormalities, it had an area under the curve of 0 0.99. So basically, uh, you know, a home run in terms of the results. And similarly, when it was asked to distinguish between normal versus papilledema or other, it also had an AUC of 0 0.99. So brilliant results. They also then had an ex uh, a separate independent test set. And as you can, uh, as you might expect, the results were less good in that regard. But what they say was that telling the difference between papilledema and the other two categories, the area under the curve was 0 0.96. And what happens is if you then choose the operating point on that, you see that that equates to about a 96% sensitivity and an 84% specificity. So very, very sensitive, but maybe not quite so specific. And you say, okay, this is brilliant because maybe this is a pathway to uh, bringing sort of world-class expertise out of a neuro-ophthalmology clinic into an emergency department, you know, for the, the doctor who's by himself at three o'clock in the morning trying to do direct ophthalmoscopy on a patient. So that's the paper. And I think it's brilliant work, really clearly written. But I guess what I wanted to highlight was a lot of the issues that Tarek had raised in his um, discussion of the previous papers. So the first thing is that I think in AI, we all really need to get clear about defining the use case, or another way to say that defining the specifics of the clinical application. So one thing is that if the use case is a doctor in an emergency department doing direct ophthalmoscopy and replacing that, well, the, the first thing to say is, does this solve the problem? If this AI system is perfect, would it solve the problem? And I would say, actually, it doesn't really solve the problem because the issue is really the acquisition of the images then. Do the emergency departments have professional standard cameras? Do they have someone who knows how to take those images? Is it okay to pharmacologically dilate the patient? And, and actually, maybe that's the hard part because I bet you if you, if you give someone a beautiful retinal photograph, uh, actually, most junior doctors might be able to differentiate between normal and papilledema or normal and other uh, other abnormalities, and maybe they'd be a bit overly sensitive, um, but that's still pretty good. So maybe you don't need AI, you just need cameras in the emergency department. So the challenge is acquisition. The other thing to say is, um, what's the key clinically meaningful metric here? Because in the abstract, they give their results for papilledema versus normal or other abnormalities. And actually, I would say if you're a doctor in an emergency department, uh, what you're more interested in would be normal versus papilledema or other abnormalities, which is different. And when you read the results of that, they actually say that sensitivity is 86% in that results and the specificity is higher. So actually the sensitivity is much, much lower in that setting. Sebastian, did you want to come in and uh, ask yeah. a, a quick question about that? Yeah, for me, uh, the um, training set is not really clear. So they, they have patients with normal optic discs, they have patients with neuro-ophthalmologic diseases, but do they have glaucoma? Do they have vascular disease? Yeah like central vein occlusion with swollen optic disc? Um, do they have uh, diabetics in? I haven't seen this. Um, yes. They specify the, the other 
problems of the disc as more atrophy, more uh, other neuro-ophthalmological diseases. And there I see a little problem. So that's exactly right. So it has the, 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 what you tested on has to be representative of what it might see in the real world. And if it hasn't been trained on uh, other retinal pathology or glaucoma or other stuff, it probably won't work in those cases. That's a very key point. Uh, the, other, the other issues I was thinking were, the other thing is benchmarking. I think that whenever you, you test the performance of a new AI system, it's good practice to benchmark against uh, the performance of, of other people, uh, of humans. So I would love to see if we give the test set from this of whatever 1000 images, I bet it'd be interesting to give it to emergency doctors and see actually how good they are in, in making those three categories. And I bet you they would do pretty well actually, even with minimal expertise in, de in determining the difference between normal versus the two other classes. Um, the other, the, a few other issues, they uh, talk about image quality and actually they exclude uh, poor quality images. And, and actually, these are the, the way that the data is trained, it's trained on data that's taken in a neuro-ophthalmology clinic, probably by specialist photographers for the most part. You know, I doubt that an emergency doctor in the middle of the night uh, in a pupil that may or may not be dilated is going to be able to get such good quality images. The other big point, and this sort of goes back to the point Sebastian made, is this issue of the distribution of data that it will be exposed to in the real world. So we have this test set, but in, pract in practice in the real world, you could imagine that like it could be used a thousand times and never pick up a case of papilledema. And so that's the type you have to have, you have to test it in an environment like that. And it may turn out if it's only one case of papilledema in a thousand, that could completely change the positive predictive values, the negative predictive values, and so on. So, you know, those were just some of the points that I just wanted to highlight. I think it's a great work, but there's still you know, things that need to be done to, see, to, to actually get this from code to clinic. It, I agree. It feel, yeah, it feels like, Pierce, um, a few years ago, the, the big papers were coming out talking about the, the, the amazing potential of AI and deep learning in particular. And that message, I think, has been received. And I feel like I really want to see things evolve moving forward. I, I almost want to hear an audit of somebody using AI in their department and the things that have come out from it, because it's the, 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 the deep learning is amazing, whether you do it for uh, detecting, um, I don't know, a dog from a cat or, a, or an optic disc, it's the same basic principle. And we now know that's amazing. So to me, the, the, the brilliant stuff will be applying it. And, and like you said, what the use case is and, and how you've managed to make it improve things for your patients. Well, I, I would just quickly say, it's not going to be about the cutting edge AI anymore. It's going to be about people like us making sure we apply it in the correct way in the exactly. future. Exactly. I think that's a wonderful sentence to to finish our uh, today's podcast on. And I would um, I would really urge everyone to read these papers carefully when you have time, and don't be swayed sometimes by by where they are published. They can be amazing quality work and, and might not apply to your clinics. So always think about your patients and what it might do for you and for your patients. 
So I would like to thank everyone today. And, uh, and it's been a wonderful opportunity to discuss these points with you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank Goodbye. You. Thank you. Now, I'm not a retina specialist, but I thought it was a fascinating discussion, so I hope our listeners did too. Thank you so much to our chairs, Tundipeto from Belfast, Sebastian Wolf from Bern, and our contributors, Tarek Aslam from the University of Manchester and Piers Keane from Moorfields and UCL. So our next event is on the 17th of February. Baram Badagi and Carlos Pavezio will be hosting a webinar on uveitis. Everything you need to know on white dot syndromes, but we're afraid to ask. And why it may not be a great name. It's sure to be a fantastic discussion for 90 minutes. They've put together an international faculty who are going to cover this tricky white dot syndrome. And there'll be lots of questions and answers as a live discussion takes place afterwards. So if you have a question about white dot syndrome, this is the place to be. Thursday, 17th of February, 8pm CET. That's it from us on Talking You Retina. I'm Jonathan McRae, your host. We'll see you next time.